1: Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast network and have a great show lined up for you today with a really interesting guest. Going to be talking about um, a book about economics and uh, approached in a very interesting way. Um, We're looking forward to uh, getting into the interview. But first, before I do that, as I clear a a frog in my throat here, before I do that, I want to remind all the listeners out there that if you enjoy this show, um, if you want to hear more of our content, uh, you can join our Lions of Liberty Pride by going to Patreon.com/slash Lions of Liberty or Lions of Liberty We have some uh, recurring bonus shows going on right now. A show called Degenerate Gamblers, where we talk about sports and gambling, and uh, we have about we're going to be starting back up about once every four to six weeks, our bonus show, Secrets, Lies, and Cover-Ups, talking about conspiracies. So if you're into any of that stuff, and if you want some more content, then join the Lions of Liberty Pride. And with that, let's get into today's show with my interview today with Art Cardin. Art is an economist. He's an author, and he's written a really fascinating book with one of the best titles – That maybe I've heard of of a book. It's called Strangers with Candy, and uh, it explores the economics of helping others. And it's a fresh and uh, compelling book that has some interesting insights from Art's experience in life and his expertise as an economist. Art, welcome to Finding Freedom. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on the show. And uh, I said there during the intro, great title. First question, I, I didn't tell you I was going to. This, this was going to be the first question, but sure. Where did the title come from?
0: Uh, so the title came from a kid's birthday party. Um, I was you know, one of our kids. <laughs> this is embarrassing, actually. I can't remember if it was one of our kids' birthday parties or not. Um, but I was at a kid birthday party, and I noticed there's just there's a candy all over the table, like the Kit Kat wrapper, the Kit Kats, and, and various other things. And it occurred to me, like our parents tell us, never take candy from strangers. And here we are taking all this candy from strangers, people we don't know, people we will never see, people we will never meet. And we don't think twice about it because we trust the name Kit Kat or the name Snickers or the name Hershey, because uh, all of these things, all these different companies have reputations to uphold. So uh, I thought that's one of the most that's one of the most amazing things about a, a free society and a free market is it makes it a whole lot easier for us to take stranger uh, to take candy from strangers. And then I decided.
1: I was just going to say, and it's 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 not because uh, the FDA was formed, and prior to that time, everyone just died when they ate candy, right? Isn't that right? Right?
0: Uh, Yeah. So the FDA is interesting because that's a lot of people say, well, clearly because of regulation, but there's really not a whole lot of money to be made in killing your paying customers, Mm -hmm. uh, surprisingly. And it turns out that companies have tended not to do that when uh, when they've had strong financial incentives not to. You hear horror stories from time to time, but brand names are very reliable, I think, as transmitters of information about the quality and veracity and integrity mm-hmm. of products. Your FDA regulation, I guess, is kind of nice to have on some margins, but one of the problems that we have with organizations like the FDA is while they do certify good stuff, They also prevent a lot of good stuff and prevent good stuff from coming about as rapidly as it could. So um, by delaying the introduction of new drugs and new products and things like that, the FDA actually causes lots and lots and lots and lots of damage.
1: Yeah, no, 100% agree with that. And I just wanted to start. With talking about the title of your book because it is such a great mm-hmm. title, um, we'll Thank come you. back to the book a, a little later on here in a few uh, few minutes. But before we do, um, just to give the audience some uh, some background on yourself, uh, you're an mm-hmm. economist, you're a professor, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you're also a uh, a Christian, and I think yep. I think you would call yourself a, a libertarian. That's a fair Definitely. characterization. Yep. So uh, let's let's start with uh, economist first. Mm-hmm. So how did you get started? down that path? What, what kind of drew you into that, uh, you know, field?
0: So when I was in high school, I decided I wanted to be a stockbroker. And then I went to college planning to become a stockbroker. Then I took an introductory economics class, and it was amazing. I thought it was it was just some of the most amazing stuff I'd ever encountered. And I really enjoyed the professor. And I thought this, this is what I want to do. I want to be an economics professor. Um, and I kind of wavered back and forth between thinking about going going on as an economics professor or getting a PhD in finance. I decided after taking introductory macroeconomics that I think I, I thought econ is really where it's at for me. I want to be I want to be an economist. I want to be an economics professor, and uh, that sort of set me set me on the path. Uh, I went to graduate school at Washington University in St. Louis from 2001 to 2006. And uh, had been in the academy since then. So, yeah. So it started. It started with an inspiring economics professor and uh, some inspiring economics lessons.
1: So, when you were inspired by that economics professor, were you already starting down the path of you know looking into the the ideas of liberty, learning about libertarianism, or was that was that later? Um,
0: I was already. In the sort of conservative libertarian-ish kind of mm-hmm. kind of area. Uh, I didn't become a full-on libertarian, I think, until, or I didn't embrace being a libertarian, I think, until maybe the next academic year, I think. Um, and even then it was kind of not particularly well formed. Uh, I knew, you know, markets work and freedom is cool. And uh, there's all sorts of stuff that that free minds, free markets, free people, to borrow you know Reason magazine's slogan can do, but I didn't fully really fully grasp it or understand it. I still sort of bought into some of the standard stories about market failure and uh, externalities and uh, the need for a government to provide public goods and things like that. but yeah, I was I was I was liberty friendly but became more libertarian as I, as I moved
1: through college mm-hmm. Were you, were you influenced at all by, by Ron Paul? Or who, who would you say your, your, your influences have been along the path?
0: So, so my, in, my influences along the path, um, I would say, let's see. So in college, I, I started reading Mises and Hayek at the recommendation of mm-hmm. a professor. Um, that was, yep. Yeah, I didn't know where to start, really. So I just read like one of Mises' essays and a book on, on our economic ABCs. I think it was um, where I, where things really started to get started to form for me were after I went to the Public Choice Outreach Conference at George Mason University in the year 2000, and I started reading in the Public Choice tradition. Um, I met James M. Buchanan. I started reading Buchanan's work. Um, I became more familiar with it. I met Gordon Tullock, Brian Kaplan, Robert Higgs. A lot of other a lot of other people who are, are sort of broadly broadly associated with with free market and libertarian economics these became um, became a lot of my influences later and I'm, gosh so like I, I'm realizing now like I'm old enough that, that all of this st- stuff just sort of starts to run together <laughs> um, Later, when I was a first-year graduate student, uh, I read Mises' *Human Action* by printing it off a chapter at a time from the Ludwig von Mises Institute's website. Nice. Um, I read Ludwig Lachmann's book *Capital Expectations and the Market Process*, and I did all of this kind of in my spare time—or what spare time you have—as a first-year graduate student. And um, I would like to say that I read one book, and it was—and then I—and then I figured out from there I need to read this and this and mm-hmm. this and this and this. But it was—it was very messy very very
1: busy yeah. I, I think that's the case with with most people and mm-hmm. we and we evolve in our in our ideas as yeah. you know things happen in, in real life and um you know current events impact that as well but um so the, the last part of this so we talked about becoming an economist and mm-hmm. libertarian and i'm, I'm going to follow this next this next question up with, with a uh, a I guess a fourth question that, that'll kind of mm-hmm. bring this all together, which you talk about in your book, but um, be- becoming a Christian. Because a lot yeah. of some people, not a lot of people, maybe some people would think that you know maybe being an economist and a libertarian wouldn't go together with being a uh, a Christian. So at, when did when did you become a Christian? Was that something that was from your your youth, or was yeah. that later in life?
0: Yeah. So so it's 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 actually it's it's a mundane testimony for kind of people. In my mm-hmm. tradition, I, I grew up in in a su- in Southern Baptist churches, and and you know I I I asked Jesus into my heart when I was five years old, and mm-hmm. kind of grew up in the church, um, made some mistakes in high school and college, and really started getting serious about my faith again around the age of twenty. Um, so, summer of nineteen ninety nine is when. I really started turning back toward my faith and then really started reading scripture the way I should probably when I was, when I was in graduate school. So it is, it's been part of my life. Uh, It's, it's been part of my life, part of my life for pretty much as long as I can remember. And I've been a Christian for almost as long as I can remember. Um, But again, it's, 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 it's messy. Um, uh, There have been, there were times when I strayed and Mm -hmm. uh, times when I didn't. And for about the last, Say yeah, just uh, just over twenty years, uh, I I would say is is kind of when I've gotten the. um, Again, like I said, I I started reading scripture. I think the way that I should uh, when I was in graduate school.
1: I I can definitely relate to that. Yeah, my my journey as a Christian has has been messy as well. Um, I I consider myself you know being a Christian since since a very young age, but yes, there were definitely times when when I did stray and. Mm -hmm. I honestly really feel like right now in the past couple of years now, I'm finally starting to really understand what it all means. And it's starting to come together and uh, getting consistent with, uh, with studying the Bible. But Mm -hmm. so next question here, and you talk about this in your book, but do you think there's a a contradiction between being a, a libertarian and an economist and a Christian? Some people might think, you know, if you're really pro-business and you're you know you're you're pro uh, people getting rich, then well you, you can't be you can't be a Christian then if you're in favor of that too. So how, how does that all come together?
0: Well, if I thought that they were all sort of intention, then I probably wouldn't have written the book. So uh, or it would have been a much 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 shorter book. Um, no, I, I don't I don't think they're intention at all. Um, and there are a bunch of different ways to approach it. One is, I think, from a Christian perspective, thinking about what it means to be created in the image of God. That means that we are not one another's playthings or we are not one another's instruments. We are not properly the instruments of other people's will. And what this means for me is that is that other people do not exist for me. That if, if, I, if I want to compel them to do something, no matter, no matter how good I think it will be for them, um, I'm not respecting the image of God in them. So mm-hmm. I think that's um, – I think I'm, I, I would be arrogating to myself an authority that I do not properly possess. So um, being a libertarian I think flows from um, the conviction that the human person is special, that the human person bears the image of God, and that's not to be taken lightly. Um, as a, as an economist, most of the arguments, most of the arguments, uh, are pretty utilitarian and utilitarian arguments generally do, do a lot of the heavy lifting here because one of the things we spend a lot of time talking about is the law of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things that we do in the name of helping the poor, so to speak, um, tend actually not to work out that well for them. So, rent control, minimum wages, tariffs—there's the, this gigantic list of policies that we have enacted in the in the name of helping poor people, or doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God—that have had serious negative, unintended consequences. So, the Economist arguments um, in favor of uh, minimal restrictions, if any, on human liberty, I think do. Uh, are, are sufficient to refute a lot of well-meaning claims. Otherwise, where things get a little bit harder, but where I think there's a lot of uh, of really interesting work to be done, and where I think there's a lot of really interesting um, ideas to chew on, is on the what you mentioned, like being a business person, getting really, really rich. Like, to mm-hmm. what extent is to what extent are the kinds of things you need to do to get rich themselves expressions of virtue? um this is you know this is not to say that like you know if if you get rich it's because you've earned god's favor well no okay i i really doubt that or um if you get rich it's because you're some sort of hyper virtuous person or 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 what have you again I'm, i'm not so sure about that but in a in a commercial society the way that you earn income the way that you get people to look after your interests is by looking after others there's a famous quote in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations where where he he writes that it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, and the baker that we expect our dinner, but it is from the it is from their attention to their own interests. And this, I think, is, is profound. It's it's a profound statement about what it means to interact peacefully and um, respectfully, I think, with strangers. Because you figure everybody in the world has probably got their own set of problems. I've got kids. I, I, do you have kids?
1: Yeah, I have a okay. daughter about to turn eight okay. years old.
0: Oh, well, fantastic! Congratulations. So, um, Smith Smith's insight is based on the maybe it's tragic, but the the uh, the simple fact that it's almost impossible to love someone else's kids the way that you love your own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost impossible to know what is best for someone else's kids. Um, and furthermore, like you've got your own stuff you've got to deal with. It's extremely presumptuous for someone to stomp, uh, stomp, into the butcher shop and expect to be fed just because they happen to be hungry. The butcher's got his own kids. He's got his own, he's got a mortgage to pay. He's got all sorts of other concerns he has to deal with. And, um, the best way to enlist the butcher in the service of you feeding your own kids is to help him do that, do that with his own. Um, one of the most interesting things that's reflected in that specific passage in Smith, and I think that it's in fact actually the, the ethical underpinning of most economic analysis, is the right to say no. So economics is all about exchange. and It's all about gains from trade. And um, you can't have gains from trade if people aren't free to trade. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, you, the, the whole concept really has no meaning if people can't say no to the offers that, to the offers that they're made. So this, this I think, is, is, is a profound and a really important insight in Smith that speaks to the intersection between economics and faith in ways that we have probably not taken as seriously as we probably should
1: yeah no i i think i think that's that's an excellent point and and what you talked about there, there it reminds me of a, a quick story i'll tell when we were uh we took our daughter to uh <clears throat> disney world a couple of years ago uh, and she'd never been in an uber before and we uh, took an uber from where we were staying to to disney world and i was explaining to her how it worked. And she goes, we're going to get in a car with a stranger. Right. Yeah. yeah I, guess, I, I guess we are. Yeah. But yep. and I didn't think at the time and I'm going to explain it. I mean, I'll probably explain it to her like this, um, later tonight, because <laughs> I think it's a good way to look at it. But when you're getting on a plane, you're getting on a plane mm. with a stranger flying yep. the plane and the, you know, the, the stewardesses who are helping you, they're, they're strangers. And when yep. you go to a restaurant, it's, it's all, it's all strangers. So I think you've yep. really, um, You've really struck a chord here with uh, with this way of, of approaching um, human interaction and, and economics. I really really like that. Uh, one thing I do want to touch on before we leave the libertarian economist uh, uh, Christian um, component of this is libertarianism alone, um, without the uh, the moral backing of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I've I've come to really understand that it's it, it's from my perspective maybe you disagree i i think it's really lacking and uh it, it could kind of lead down this self-absorbed path of yeah. um r- really individuals just looking out for themselves mm-hmm. and maybe harming other people so do, do you think that really it's it's almost necessary to have christianity as as a piece of that um backing in order to you know make it so we are mm-hmm. looking out for our neighbors yeah. when we're doing um these consensual trades
0: so, so necessary, necessary is, is a strong word. I, I don't know if mm-hmm. I'd say necessary, um, but yeah, people tend to be pretty self-absorbed. And frankly, I, I think that's one thing that attracts some people to libertarianism is they just want to be mm-hmm. left alone and they just want to be able to do their own thing. Um, liberty, I think, is, is, is conducive to flourishing, but it's not sufficient for flourishing. So, you can bear the image of God badly. And I've done that before. You've done that before. Mm -hmm. um, Probably everyone who's on the stream has done that before. And you can do that systematically. So, um, liberty, libertarians respect people's right. To themselves and to their persons, and I think that part of the implicit theology there is that is that people have the right to bear the image of God badly, if they want to, uh, and I think there are a lot of things that there are a lot of things that we do pretty regularly mm-hmm. that are, again, not conducive to serious human flourishing. Uh, there are, of course, example. There, you know, there are examples we can all think of. A smoky crack, for example, is is I am I've never seen a convincing argument that a crack addiction is is part of a flourishing life. Um, and that's easy. Like, that's easy to see. But also, you know, I, I, I need to lose some weight. So I, I bear the image of God, actually in a, in a very literal sense that I'm really not sure I, I want to admit to. But you know, I, I bear the image of God badly in that, you know, I probably eat too much. and I don't move enough. So uh, that I think is in microcosm. One of the mm-hmm. one of the problems here. Liberty liberty. also I also don't think that Liberty per se can can provide meaning Liberty is mm-hmm. Liberty is is the the institutional framework in which each person can pursue meaning but I'm not sure that it is that it could be a source of meaning in itself
1: I, I think I think that hits the nail on the head there um, and, and I think that's really at least in, in my libertarian circles mm-hmm. for for many different reasons I think what happened with COVID with the lockdowns. I think it really shook a lot of people um, mm-hmm. who were just sort of clinging to these ideas of Liberty as a, uh, you know, like a, as the sole guiding philosophy that um, it, it's, it's, it's really not, it's, yeah. um, it, 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 it's a framework, but it's, it, it's not everything and it's, it's, it's not going to give you meaning. Um, right. But anyway, um, moving, moving on from that. Um, you know, you, you talk about uh, uh, the, the book, the book is really easy to read. I haven't read the whole book. I'll admit that up front, but it's a lot of very short chapters, which I mm-hmm. like. And I think, you think you said during the introduction that, <laughs> that you could read it, um, when, when you're waiting to buy milk, or you can read the whole book when you're waiting at the DMV and I'm like, I'm not sure how fast <laughs> I, I read, but, but how, how long would I be waiting at the DMV for? Man, eh, maybe three hours. I don't know. So it's possible, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, one thing you talked about is sort of looking at history and mm-hmm. a lot of people are nostalgic for the past. And if I just, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm saying I wish I grew up in the 50s. It, w- it was a simpler uh, time. And you point out a lot of different areas where we've, you know, obviously have evolved into a uh, a better life. So if, if you could talk about really what you mean by that and some of those areas that are just so stark and just being... A, a better way to live.
0: Yeah. So this is the greatest time to be alive ever. Um, and I, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that happened in history. That's kind of neat, but it, a few moments reflection suggests that nostalgia for the fifties or the sixties or the seventies or the eighties, when I grew up would be just horrifically misplaced. Um, and, <clears throat> You know, I have fond memories of the 80s and 90s in part because I was a kid and didn't really have a whole lot in the way of responsibility and bad memories tend to fade. If you look statistically or if you look at at the sort of statistical picture um, about the world then compared to the world now, on every margin, life is way better today than it used to be. Life expectancy is a lot longer. Um, The world we inhabit generally is a lot cleaner And a lot of people may 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 find that surprising. But, you know, generally, we're able to have cleaner, nicer houses than we uh, than we used to. Um, We have access to arts and sciences unlike anything that the world has ever seen. Um, I glanced at the Wall Street Journal the other day and saw that. Well, no, yesterday, yesterday and today, I think, and saw that the federal government is going after Google. And I find this kind of tragic in that Google has opened up this this huge world of possibilities to people for free. And and when I use the word free, it's, you know, uh, part of me, like my, my inner economist kind of dies a bit inside. Because there's if no, nothing if, really if something, I forget,
1: but, I forget who said this, but if, if, if something is free, then the consumer is the product, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, it's so, our data that, that's being right. sold.
0: But. Yeah, but like, but how many people knew they had data, you know, before Google and Facebook yeah. and, and everybody came along? Uh, you know, to say nothing of the fact that like switching costs are pretty easy. You can go from uh, you can go from Google to Bing pretty pretty quickly, pretty easily. Um, so things like Google Scholar, Google Books, these are the, these are, are ways that our ancestors could not have imagined that we can interact with the greatest ideas that humanity's ever come up with. Again, pick just about any margin. Life today is way better than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, especially a few hundred years ago. Occasionally I'll ask students, you know, would you rather live in Florence, Italy at the height of the Renaissance or Florence, Alabama today? And there's sort of like a romantic view perhaps that says, oh, you know, Florence, Italy during the Renaissance, you're around all these great people thinking all these great things. But if you're in Florence, Italy at the time of the Renaissance, you're far more likely to be an illiterate peasant begging and starving than to be somebody actually interacting with all these people who are thinking all this great stuff. Meanwhile, if you're in Florence, Alabama in 2022 or 2023 or 2024, you have have almost instant and unlimited access, again, to the greatest ideas that humanity has ever produced. You can read, you can write, you can bathe. There's just so many more possibilities today than there really ever were. And I don't know that we appreciate that the way we should
1: yeah I, I mean, obviously I think we have progressed tremendously and I agree essentially with, with, with everything you're saying here, but there are certain areas where you know we are we have fallen back. If you look at mm-hmm. mostly from a health standpoint, in the past 30 to 40 years, you have skyrocketing cancer rates, yeah. skyrocketing, diabetes, childhood obesity, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. A lot of, for example, to talk about childhood obesity, you know, a lot of which driven that is just this tremendous, um, acceleration with technology, which yeah. I think we're still figuring figuring out how to adjust to yeah. as a, a, from, from a parenting standpoint, from a mm-hmm. you know, schooling standpoint, all of that stuff. But, um, yeah, def- definitely agree with that. But I, I guess but think, a, a think about, question think I
0: think about this for, think about this uh, for just a second though. So I, I would agree, you know, yeah. obesity is a problem, um, Rising cancer rates and things like that are in, in part because we're living long enough to get diseases like cancer. And the, th- this also illustrates, again, just how truly remarkable the, the modern world is. That Our big health problem is that we have too many calories. Not that mm-hmm. we're starving to death, but we have too many calories and too many opportunities to you know, be sedentary. But, yeah, I agree. I agree. That's, yeah. that's definitely an issue.
1: Yeah. Too, too, well, too many calories. And I mean, we yeah. do have these, not to belabor this, but we've we, we, we have, uh, a lot of the major food corporations that are supplying mm-hmm. the food, the mass produced food that people who maybe don't have, you know, a lot of money who might be, you know, getting some mm-hmm. government assistance are eating, eating the, the lowest, lowest quality food. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, I just... I, I'm a capitalist, I believe yeah. in capitalism, but we, mm-hmm. we get to this line with the, the marriage between, um, government and, and business. And, you know, as, as you know, the, the businesses that end up writing the regulations mm-hmm. that, that give them more, um, more, more leeway and more, uh, more breaks that help to, you know, push, push down their competitors and, and things of that nature. But that's, that's just a part of the, this, you know, system of government that, that we have today that. Yeah, we're dealing with.
0: Well, there, I think I think the the libertarian message is not that business has corrupted government. Because uh, again, one of, the, one of the things I remind my students is that the the difference, the fundamental difference between a firm and a state is violence. A state can shoot mm. you. A state can lock you in a cage. Uh, firms can't do that. You know, if you choose not to shop at Walmart, there's nothing they can do about it, really. Um, you know, they can, they can go and try to get their friends in the government to write some legislation, making it harder for Target or whoever else to do business, but sort of at a, at a, at a fundamental level, the business, the business of business is business, so to speak. And the business of government is violence. So I think it's, it's, it's the arrow, the the arrow of corruption goes in the other direction. It's, it's government corrupting commerce and not vice versa.
1: I I definitely agree with that, but and, and to kind of go off track for a minute here, just it popped in my head, because I, I think it is an important discussion, um, especially where we're going to, I think we'll, it's, it's going to become forefront, if not mm-hmm. this election, the, the the next presidential election, which would be a central bank digital currency. Oh where, yeah. Um, where, where where you really have, um, sure that is, com- it's coming, whoa, it's coming from the federal reserve, which mm-hmm. technically is not a part of government. Supposedly it's a private right. bank, um, b- but yes, it's going to be, you know, what are businesses going to do when they're, you know, when they're given, given that power to, to turn off mm-hmm. and on your, your money or to get, or to manipulate yeah. your um, wh- what you're able to buy, what you can't buy. Um, and, you know, people talked about this when the vaccines yeah. came out um, uh, for COVID-19, if something similar were to happen with the central bank digital currency and you don't have, you know, certain vaccine or whatever, mm-hmm. so if you don't qualify on a social credit score, then you're not able to, you know, make your purchases at, at the grocery store. So just, just quickly or, or, or forever long you want to talk for, what, what are your thoughts on uh, central bank digital currency?
0: Yeah. So I, I don't know enough about it to really have a strong opinion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but you, you do raise what I think are some valid concerns. If um, I, I remember seeing not terribly long ago, um, gosh, what was it? A lot of Homes with smart thermostats. I want to say in Colorado. I could just be completely making this up, or just totally botching the story. But um, there's some sort of energy problem, and all the homes Mm -hmm. with with smart smart thermostats said, "Okay, now we're set on whatever the temperature is, and you can't change it." So I could see something like that happening with something like a central bank digital currency, um, where, as you mentioned, um, your you know your money gets shut off unless you're vaccinated, or your money gets shut off unless you have done this thing or that thing or the other thing. Um, here, though, I, I borrow from something I remember Brian Kaplan writing a long time ago. Um, it said, a strategy, a strategy for liberty is to find things governments do very poorly and then do them better. And so governments are really terrible at education, for example. So mm-hmm. there are private alternatives. And uh, unfortunately, not as widespread as, as they probably could be. Um, it's not really clear that the government handles money all that well, so uh, I would like to see I'd like to see more private alternatives there but yeah again, you do you do raise a you do raise a good point it's it's gonna be hard to see how it would be it would be hard to see how to avoid using a central bank digital currency if or if and when that's what it comes to and it will it will be very hard for a central bank or a government in charge of such a thing to not abuse it.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, I think, yeah, I think it, it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. We've had, you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida mm-hmm. come out and say that he's not going to allow it in Florida. I'm not even sure if that's even possible, Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's course in political points. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so something that I wanted to ask you about, um, with economics, with business, um, really you know transacting between two individuals is, is is a way to to make a connection um you know ron paul would often talk about you know trading with with other countries um if you if you're trading with a country you're, you're you're much less likely to go to war yeah and it, it's interesting that a lot of you know these so-called um you know i guess uh tech people like mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say Elon Musk, but he's kind of come back sort of from from the left to uh, to more of a at least on a business side mm-hmm. to to a uh, libertarian standpoint. But a, a lot of uh, like the leading tech minds, people at Google, um, they're very l- left leaning and pro government intervention, pro um, w- welfare, all of these things. And I, I, I just wonder with them seeing the power of, um, business being able to raise the standard of living for people and Mm -hmm. to bring this technology to to people across the world and raise people out of, uh, out of hunger. Um, why do you think it is that they're so quick to turn back to government for solving problems that they've seen solved Mm -hmm. through, um, you know, through, through business? So it's, uh, so
0: my armchair psychology is they, they might see, they might see the problem solved and not connect the dots to business and commerce specifically. Um, they would probably see where technology has, has played a huge role and not really see how it's business and commerce again, that that are, that Mm -hmm. are deploying the technologies toward the ends that they want. Um, Again, this is me being an armchair psychologist. A lot, a lot of very, very smart people think that they can run the world, and a lot of very, very smart people think that they should run the world. So, um, I think that you know, for a lot, of, a lot of folks in the Silicon Valley tech left, you know, this is just a manifestation of of a certain arrogance or a certain conceit that says, you know, I'm really smart. I can figure out what people should do stand back and let me run other people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, again, there's a certain arrogance. I'm not going to say inherent, but a certain arrogance, I think that comes with, with having that kind of brain power. Um, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty regular. I think to look at, at the dumb things that people are doing and say, well, clearly if I were in charge, they wouldn't do these things.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think, I think that must, must be it. Um, and I think it's it's surprising that more of these types are not attracted into mm-hmm. the political realm to run for office and to, you know, yeah. run for president. And um, I, I wish they, I wish they would, cause I think we'd get better ideas in there, but uh, of course she, we got, we got Donald Trump, uh, but you know, <laughs> right. we, we all know that, we all know how that worked out. Um, but to, to pivot and, you know, to talk a little bit more about your book, some specific areas. And I got to say, I love the, you know, you have your book split up into parts. I love the you know some of the names you have for your parts. Very straight into the point. How strangers help you avoid getting ripped off. Love that. Yeah. Um, and in one of the sections, you talk about uh really why minimum wage hurts poor people. Mm-hmm. And you know, speaking to, to libertarians, I think a lot of libertarians would understand this obviously, but I'm curious, you know, be, being a professor and speaking to young people, is, is this something that, that you've found you've been able to, you know, get that message to to resonate with young people that the minimum wage is actually hurting poor people?
0: Sometimes I wonder how much of it is, is that the, that the message is resonating and how much of it is just that students are worried it's going to be on the test. But yeah, I do find, I do find that people, people find that, find this kind of revelatory, that uh, simply wishing that you were making people better off is not the same thing as actually making people better off. Mm -hmm. Seeing how people respond to incentives and seeing how changing people's incentives lead to these negative unintended consequences is one of the things that can be revelatory for them, kind of like it was revelatory for me. Um, Where, In fact, actually where we're going in class on Friday is gonna be precisely, precisely in that direction. Where there's a lot of stuff I think that's really interesting is in thinking about all of the ways other than wages that firms and workers adjust to changing changing minimum wage conditions. So there's an article in the New York Times a few years ago. In fact, I, I can't remember if this is actually in the book or not. Um, that's, what, that's, one of, that's one of the problems with, with, with writing something and, and having it go through multiple re, you know, revisions and things like that is you forget what you forget what's still in there. Um, but a few years ago, I saw an article in the New York Times talking about how awful it was that fast food workers in New York City were being fired just like being late once. And I noticed, OK, well, the minimum wage in New York City at the time, I think, was like $13 an hour. And the, the two, I think, are clearly connected. If, um, hmm. if you have an oversupply of labor due to the fact that the minimum wage is artificially high and wages cannot go down, then the job has to change on some other margin. And the other margin on which the jobs appear to be changing in this case were things like flexibility, things like scheduling, and things like tolerance for mistakes. Because uh, if you're paying someone $13 an hour and someone doesn't show up, well, there's a whole army of other people out there who would be glad to show up every single time for $13 mm-hmm. an hour. So I think, I think this, is this again, is, is another manifestation of, uh, of the, the negative unintended consequences of policies that we sometimes make. Uh, make all meaning well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I think of the minimum wage, you know, I, I really, it's going to be interesting to watch how it plays out with artificial intelligence and robotics and what's going to happen in these types of, you know, low-skill, yeah. uh, fast-food type type jobs. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious to get your opinions um, on, you know, what sort of impact and how quickly you think the, uh, you know, artificial intelligence will impact the economy. And is this really something that you think maybe in the next, you know, five years to 10 years that we could see a massive shift where, you know, every single Wendy's, every single McDonald's, and I know you're, mm-hmm. you're putting on, I'm asking you to put on yeah. your, your crystal ball hat here, but from an economic, econ, economic perspective, mm-hmm. um, what, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff that could be automated and that will be automated probably over the next decade. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the only person working at McDonald's in five years is a security, is a security guard. Mm -hmm. Um, similar sort of story for Starbucks and various other places. Uh, the writing is on the wall for, for relatively low skill jobs that are not just easy, not just easy to automate, uh, like we've had previously, but where artificial intelligence can handle a lot of what is currently the cognitive burden. Um, Where this gets sticky and where this gets where this gets difficult is in being reasonably certain that something else will come along, but not knowing what that something else actually is. Hmm. Um, I think well, so, so I, I am I am not convinced that this time is really different yeah, because every time some new technology comes along, everyone says, OK, well, this time it's different. This time it's, it's coming for this particular sector of jobs and then we're all going to be poor. Um, I don't see a reason why AI has to be that. But again, one of the reasons why people hate economists is because we can't we can't be very specific about predicting with precision um, what the new opportunities are going to be. So one story I tell or one way one way I put this from time to time is like in in, in 1998, nobody would have told me sitting in a a classroom as a college sophomore that I would someday uh, that I would someday need a social media presence. And that there would be a there there would be a lot of job opportunities for people in social media management. Okay, like, no one had any idea in 1998 what the jobs of tomorrow are, and we have no idea now what the jobs of tomorrow are. Um, I think we can do a really good job. Well, <laughs> um, we would do well, I think, to explore. Uh, I think we would do well to kind of have faith in ourselves and faith in one another. And also to encourage the people around us to make prudent decisions about the kinds of skills we invest in, and the kinds of assets we invest in. Uh, there was again a an article in this morning's Wall Street Journal um, about a rising tide of homelessness among baby boomers. And in kind of glancing at the article, I, mm-hmm. I you know, obviously like my heart goes out to these folks, but also I wonder like what what decisions were you making 40 years ago that led you to being in your early seventies and having nothing to live on except for your social security payments. Like we've known for decades that social security, social security is, is, is not going to fully support someone in retirement. We know now that social security very well may not be there for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I read an article like that and I think what choices do I need to make now? What choices do I need to encourage other people to make now so that they don't end up in a situation like that?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. Like when you start to look into, you know, the average 401k balance of, you know, somebody from the age of, you know, 60 to 75, it's like $80,000, which is totally absurd. That's the average. So that's, that's skewed Mm -hmm. by, you know, some at the, at the very, very low end. Um, but it's yeah, it's I, I don't know. I, I think I think maybe a part of the, the, the boomer generation, it's sort of a, the trust in institutions is a lot more so than, you know, people probably. I think you and I are around the same age and people younger than us who we've I think uh, we understand that Social Security, the government, No one's coming to save us. Um, We're going to have to uh, have to watch out for ourselves. Um, Yeah. So we're uh, we're past the 40 minute mark here, but I do want to ask you just one more question. Sure. And and then get your plugs after that. But so in this book, you know, we just went through a couple topics very quickly here. Is is there anything else about the book or or about something else altogether that really you think is something you want to highlight and uh, let my audience know about, or maybe something you you want to revisit to uh, to reinforce.
0: So first, first, I believe the book the book the book I believe is still like four dollars and ninety nine cents on Kindle, which I think is a, is a pretty good deal. And uh, yeah. since this is actually a collection of articles I wrote for the American uh, American Institute for Economic Research and various other places for a while, like I don't get paid anything extra for uh, you know, like new book sales and stuff like that, but. Um, Part of, part of the book, and I hope this kind of comes through as, as people read it, is just how amazing and how wonderful the world is when you look at it through the lenses that the econ- economic way of thinking provides. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's truly glorious um, yeah, I tell my students, for example, that uh, you know, like I, write down, I write down an equation for the quantity theory of money and like I'm almost moved to worship because it's just so simple mm. and so beautiful, but it is so profound. Um, that, I hope, is something that comes out uh, in this book and in various other things that I have going on.
1: Well, that is awesome. Well, that, that is, that is your gift. Um, your you. gift is understanding that. these ideas and being able to communicate them in a uh, very easy to understand way. So I appreciate you putting this book sure. together and uh, just want to give you an opportunity now to give, give any, any plugs, mention where people can buy the book again and, and maybe your social media, if you want to share that.
0: Yeah. So if you go to strangerswithcandybook.com, with um, Oh, actually, you know what? There's, um, so Doug Stewart from the Libertarian Christian Institute gave me a code to share.
1: Let me see if I can find that. Um, Doug Stewart, fr- friend of the show, he's been on. Uh, oh, he's good. Been okay. on Finding Freedom before.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I should have. I should have this at hand. I should have made a note of this earlier. Uh, okay, but so, so here we are. Like searchable email makes this so super duper easy. Um, let's see here.
1: Well, if you just want to send me the code, I okay. can uh, I, I can add it in and then put it on the uh, on the show notes page as well.
0: All right, awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah. So so here here we are talking about the wonders of technology and it's you know something I've forgotten. But yeah. Anyway, there is a code. If you go to strangerswithcandybook dot com, you can uh, you'll be able to buy it at a discount, and I'll send you that as soon as I uh, as soon as I find it and I remember what it was.
1: All right, that was my interview with Art Card, and hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you're going to go and pick up the book. And uh, yeah, so if, if you enjoyed this show and uh, you want more, like I said, at the top of the show, join the pride, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty.locals.com. And I hope that you've subscribed to the podcast as well. If you're a YouTube subscriber, please don't forget to hit that little bell somewhere up here to make sure that you get notified when we release a new uh, new video or if we go live. So, and the code for Art's book is Candyman. And that is for 10% off at the website strangerswithcandybook.com. Use code Candyman for 10% off. With that being said, hopefully everyone has a great week. I'll see you all next week. Always remember to keep your head up. In the fires of liberty burning.